Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to bring uh, the Word of God to you today. And I'll be turning to Acts chapter 2 in just a moment. Before I turn there, um, I just want to give you an update on how training's been going. You may know that I'm the director of training for Commission, the family of churches that Hope Church is a part of. Um, hence why I'm here. The plan has always been to run training courses out of this incredible facility. But obviously with COVID and the pandemic, it's not just church services which have gone online. We've had to put everything online. And so from September, we've been running five training courses from introductory courses to theology and reading the Bible all the way through to master's courses in theology, uh, which is primarily pastors who are doing that, wanting to continue their own development. Um, and we are training pastors, training leaders of all different experience backgrounds and it's been going really well God's favor has been on what we've been doing we're probably getting close to 80 people being trained across our five courses and so despite all of the challenges of the pandemic and despite the fact I'm getting square eyes just staring at computer screens all the time it feels like God nevertheless is doing something and helping us to equip one another which is such uh, a privilege. We're always learning, aren't we? And indeed, that's what we're thinking about today. The subject which Steve has asked me to speak on is learning in community as part of a series of sermons that we're doing, particularly on discipleship. Um, and disciples is maybe not a word we use very often, but we simply mean, as Christians, we're called to become ever increasingly more like Jesus. To be his disciple is to follow him. As we were hearing about from Jonathan last week, it's to learn from him. So Jesus is the one ultimately who's discipling us. And he's the one that we're ultimately being discipled to become like. No one has ever walked this planet more happily than Jesus did. No one has had as fruitful a life, of course, than he had. No one suffered like he suffered. And yet through all of that, he perfectly did it. And his life is now our life. We, we're in him. We're in his, his perfect life is attributed to us, which is amazing. Um, but I want to be more like Jesus. And we as a church want to help one another to be more like Jesus. We want to be happier. We want to glorify God. We want to be more fruitful with our lives. We want to know how to suffer well. All of these things Jesus has taught us and continues to teach us. Um, and one day we'll be perfectly like him. But that is a process that happens in the context of community. I would say it's impossible to be well discipled on your own somewhere, in your own room, without any interaction with fellow believers and fellow disciples. Even though there are particular pressures on us at the moment with being in a lockdown, nevertheless, we're able to disciple one another. And I hope you're feeling the benefits of that. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, please turn there with me. And in a moment, we'll read from verse 42 down to verse 47. This really is an example of what the church really is like. What is a great church? I mean, that's a good question. Let me put that question to you. What makes for a good church? If I was to ask you, describe to me an excellent church, a healthy church, what would you describe? What things would you call out? What things would you say should be evident in a really good church? Is this a good church? 
Is Hope Church a good church? Of course it is, I hear you say. But then why? What makes this a good church? Let me put it to you like this. If I was to hold up two Rolex watches, this isn't a Rolex watch, I hasten to add, but if I was to hold up two Rolex watches and say, one of these is genuine, one of them's fake, how would you know which was the real watch? How would you be able to establish the authenticity of the real one? Well, you would know quite quickly not to be deceived by the shine or the sparkle. You would know that on the surface of things, they're both going to look pretty nice. In order to establish authenticity, you want to see documentation. You want to get to study it very closely and really want an expert to come along and help you with that. You'll test the timekeeping. How accurately does it keep time, but you, you'll want a close, almost a forensic inspection to establish which is the real one. Well, can you apply a similar approach to the church? How do you test the authenticity of a church to know whether or not it really is healthy? Well, I hope what we're going to see today will show us what we should be looking for in a church, what we as a church should be aspiring to be like as we look at really the very first church. And we're given a description by Luke who writes the book of Acts about this first church and what it was like. Now, Acts 2 is a description of the day of Pentecost. This is the moment when the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem. The believers had gathered together, about 120 of them. They were waiting for this moment that Jesus said would happen, when the Holy Spirit would be poured upon all people. Indeed, this happens on this Pentecost day. The power of God comes, and it's described to us as a rushing wind that tongues of fire come to settle upon the believers, that they start speaking in unlearned foreign languages. And everyone who's gathered around in Jerusalem, and there would have been a vast crowd of people there who traveled for this festival, they're seeing all of these people speaking in different languages, their languages, which they hadn't learned. Like, what's, what's going on? Everyone was so puzzled by this. It, it would appear to have been a very odd spectacle to the extent whereby people are saying, are these guys drunk? Like, are they drunk? And Peter stands up, the Apostle Peter, and he says, they're not drunk. It's like nine in the morning. It's, this is the power of God. And he, he spontaneously speaks and preaches, and he's quoting scripture from memory. He doesn't pull out a Bible from his pocket. You know, you wouldn't have access to Bibles the way we have them today. He would have memorized scripture and he quotes Joel and he quotes some of the prophets and he starts to apply what was spoken hundreds of years ago into this moment. This is what God promised. Powerful, stunning scene. 3,000 people in that moment meet Jesus for the first time. The church is born in Jerusalem. 3,000 people. Now the question is, what would this church be like? What would be the spectacular, dynamic church of Jerusalem after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What kind of a church would this be? Okay, now we're going to read the passage. Acts 2 verse 42. This is what we're told. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and to prayer. After the power and the dynamism of that Pentecost moment, what would the church be like? Well, we're, we're told a very basic description of this Jerusalem church. Now, I, at this point, I want to say this. Don't be disappointed by this unspectacular description of the church. Don't somehow be tricked into thinking that because we're not told that the 3,000 people went around healing everyone they encountered, raising the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine, performing all kinds of miracles, foretelling the future. Because we're not told that those things were happening in this moment, that somehow this is a disappointing description of the church. It's not. That would be a trap. That would be to be sucked into the, the shine and the sparkle and to think it's all about the shine and the sparkle and the, the, what glimmers, whereas what Luke is doing is he's taking us into the guts of the church. He's taking us into the heart of the church. He's showing us what it was the church in Jerusalem loved to do. He's showing us the heart. If you want to know whether or not it's a Rolex watch, really you want to know what's going on inside the, the, the workmanship of it. You need to go into the guts. And he's taking us into the guts, as it were, of this church. And he's showing us that this church was a church that loved, that was devoted, that had passion and affection for God and for one another. Do you know it's true that you are what you love? I know it said you are what you eat, which isn't always a great description of my eating behaviours. But nevertheless, if you are what you love, who or what is it that you love? And here we're shown the authenticity of this church on the basis of what it was that they loved. Jesus was on up once asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he responded like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Really, what we have here in these verses and acts is that great commandment being applied and being worked out. We're gonna see this. Loving God, worship, devotion, loving one another, giving of ourselves to one another. So the first thing that we're told is that they loved the apostles teaching a spirit-filled church a disciple-making church is one that loves to teach and be taught the bible a church which makes disciples that loves jesus that is full of the holy spirit loves the bible and loves to teach the bible now i once had someone say to me you may have heard this yourself i, I know it often gets said someone once said to me Tim, wouldn't it be amazing if the power of God moved so wonderfully in a worship time? It was so full of the Holy Spirit and everyone was so powerfully meeting with God that we had no time for the sermon, that there was no time for the sermon at all. I was like, that would be terrible. That's nonsense what you're saying. Let me, let me tell you why. Because arguably the most powerful service of all time happened in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The most powerful, the Spirit came, 3,000 people got saved in one moment. And if you read the description of that moment in Acts chapter 2, you'll find that the majority of the description is given over to Peter's sermon. 
that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon. And it was the contents of that sermon that's recorded more than anything else. The reason why it would be nonsense to kind of just park and throw away the Bible and let's just spend time enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the one that drives us into the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one that wrote this book in the first place. He's the author of it, inspiring many people to write his words. Another reason why that would be a nonsense is that Jesus himself said what would happen when the Holy Spirit came. Um, these are Jesus's words in John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says this to his disciples, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. And then he reiterates this in chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Like Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to take you into truth. He's going to remind you of everything that I've said. My favorite commentators on the book of John Dale Bruner says this. We learn everything we need to know now by being reminded of everything Jesus said then. Everything we need to know now is a reminder of what Jesus said then. Actually, it's the work of the devil to drive the Bible out of the church. I'd say it as strongly as that. It's the work of the devil to get rid of the Bible from the church. The work of the Spirit is to see that the truth of God's word is firmly established in the church in a life-giving, Christ-glorifying way so that as these words are read, as they are taught, we, like this church in Jerusalem, are devoted to the teaching. Why? Because we're devoted to Jesus. Because we love Jesus so much. Because he's changed our lives. Because he died for us. He's our friend. We want to know more about Jesus. Some might say, well, I'm just not very booky. I'm not very academic. That's my issue. That's why I struggle with the Bible. And I can appreciate why that's a genuine challenge for some. Though we can listen to audio Bibles. There are ways to help one another. But I would say this. Neither were the disciples academics. This is interesting. If I turn over to chapter 4. We have Peter and the apostles. They have been used by God to perform a, a mighty miracle. And they're brought before the council, before the scribes, before the teachers. These are the ones, if you like, that had the university Bible education. They've got all of the degrees, all of the qualifications. And these guys are causing this ruckus. Everyone is um, being disrupted, as it were, by their teaching and their perspective. Well, we would say people's lives are being changed. That's saying it's a disruption. You're, you're meddling with things. What's going on? What's this new teaching that you're bringing? This is what it says in verse 13 of chapter 4. When they, that's the scribes and the priests, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
Peter, it says, was full of the Holy Spirit. Now that word they, they use there, uneducated. The Greek word is the word idiotai, from which we get our word idiot. So in other words, Luke is saying, when they saw that Peter and John were idiots, they realized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, the three years these disciples spent with Jesus, the three years they spent learning from him, listening to him, had given them an insight and an understanding and an education vastly superior to the scribes even, who have all of the degrees. What you and I need in order to learn well is to, as it were, sit at Jesus's feet, to learn from him, as we were hearing last week, to open our Bibles, to listen to our Bibles, to hear the Bible taught. We grow in our love for Jesus. And people, I hope, will look at you and look at me and go, wow, it's being with Jesus. That's what we're longing for. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The next thing is that they loved one another. They were devoted to fellowship. Verses 44 to 46. All the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. Listen, this is a bunch of people that loved each other. They really did. It was a family. And the church is described like that. Mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, a family. The amazing thing about this family is it's always got room for people to join. It says that God added to their number daily those that were being saved. There was, as it were, always a space at the table for someone to join. They shared all of their possessions. They gave to one another. No one had any need because there was just such a generosity of spirit in this church. There was such a love for one another that whenever they saw a need being presented, they responded. Others were looking in and going, this is astonishing. This is a mixed group of people. It's not like you can say, well, they're they're one big kind of uh, one race. There's one racial group here. and, And so... And so that's why they're particularly looking after their own. Now, this was a mixed congregation with many different nations and backgrounds. And they loved one another and cared for one another. It's one of the standout features. As Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. A core hallmark of the disciple-making church is that we care for each other. And so the question isn't, well, who's loving me so much as, Who am I loving? And if I'm to become more like Jesus, then I'm not sat around going, well, where are all my worshippers? Who's coming to serve me? Who's coming to look after me? Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve, to be a servant. And so for me to become more like Jesus is to serve others. So if you say that, yeah, I want to be more like Jesus, then I suppose the challenge is, well, don't wait for someone to make you like Jesus. Why not take some steps yourself to be like him in responding to the needs of others and loving others? Of course you need people to love you as well. And the reality is I can't love anyone in the way that Jesus has loved me unless I first received his love. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4 verse 19. 
but you've been loved by him. And because you've been loved by him, you respond to that love by sharing it with others. In a sense, the grace that flows into us through the gospel, the grace, the gift that comes into us, it flows in as grace and flows out in generosity. That's what happens. It flows as a river, as it were, that flows in. Grace flows in, generosity flows out. So the stingy, tight, I'm not going to do anything for anyone. My money is mine. My things are mine. I do not share. Joey does not share his food. You know, that kind of attitude is not the attitude being described here of the book, in the book of Acts, about the church. It's a giving church. It's a loving church. It's generous. They gave to one another. And the fascinating thing is it says they gathered together in the temple and from house to house. So there was a bigger gathering, which happened in the temple, but then they were meeting from house to house. In other words, they weren't solely dependent upon the big gatherings, for the smaller gatherings were just as vital to this church's community and to this church's life. Now, obviously, we're not able to gather at all at the moment. I'm being asked often, Tim, what do you think are the big lessons for the church during this pandemic period? What are we learning I might be talking to pastors of churches. Um, it might be people just generally wondering what's God doing. One of the things clearly we recognize has been an issue, particularly in our Western context, has been an over-dependence upon what happens when we gather in the bigger settings, that we can become so dependent upon arriving on a Sunday morning, having a coffee, having our hug, sitting down in our normal seat, waiting for a super band to start, to be fed well, some great teaching, to have our spiritual fix, to go back and just to carry on the motions. The challenge of consumerism. But what we recognize right now is we need each other more than we've ever needed each other before. And what we miss is the one anothering, the fellowship, the community. And if you think of how the church gathered here, it was on two wings. If you think of an aeroplane, you had the wing, which was the bigger gathering, and then the other wing would be the smaller gathering from house to house. I feel in our kinds of churches, to some extent, we've paid too much attention to the bigger gatherings. And so we've been flying a little bit like this. I feel God would want us to be far more active at loving one another from house to house being around one another, caring from one another, not being so dependent on the guru at the front doing everything for us, but actively taking steps to see that we're discipling one another in the context of our own homes. I don't know what that might look like for you. I know I share the heart of the elders here to say that this is something which we in Hope Church are passionate about doing. Yes, we've got brilliant musicians and brilliant gifted people helping us when we do our bigger gatherings and we can't wait for that but one of the things I've been so touched by since coming to this church has been how we love one another behind the scenes praying for people when they're sick providing meals for people when they're in need that happens in a good church we shouldn't take that for granted right I'm just going to quickly mention these next two things just as I come to to wrap up, we're told that they broke bread, the breaking of bread they were devoted to, and to prayer. The breaking of bread, communion, remembering the Lord's death upon the cross, the body broken 
the blood shed. Good churches do that. Why? Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. I think the best piece of advice found in the Gospels, besides Jesus' direct advice himself, comes from his mum, comes from Mary. On the, the occasion at the wedding of Cana, at Cana, when the wine ran out, and the servants come to her, and she says, um, you need to do whatever Jesus says to do. Do whatever he says. Jesus was like, why is this my problem? She just, she knew he had it. Do whatever he says. That's what a good church does. A good church is obedient to the words of Jesus. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine, a good church does it because he's told us to do it. I can't wait for us to be gathered together to break bread. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, do you know what he said this of communion? He said, the moments that we are closest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. And the paradox is that in a sense, it's also the moment where, as it were, we're closest to the cross as we think of his body broken and his blood shed and closest to heaven. I understand what I think he's saying and as much as when I look at my brothers and sisters and I know what that bread and that wine means for them, for their lives, for their eternal destiny, that we together celebrate what he has done and how he's united us and drawn us near. It's heavenly, it's a heavenly moment in many senses. We get to enjoy that together. All of these things are disciple-making moments. This obedience to the words of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple, obediently following him. And then the last thing we're told is that they were devoted to prayer. They loved to pray. And man, Jesus loved to pray. If you read through the gospel, so many times you find him going off, finding a quiet place and praying. In Gethsemane, he prayed. He prayed before he broke the loaves and the fish. He prayed as he raised Lazarus from the grave he prayed he prayed he prayed and the lord's prayer came as the disciples again saw him praying having his time with his father and they said to him can you teach us how to pray and hence the lord's prayer comes but you get the sense that the disciples were watching him praying the whole time we want to pray like you jesus and of course he says you pray like this our father what a privilege it is that we get to pray to the father what a privilege that is. The Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit-filled church, prays, Abba, Father. What a privilege to pray. I want to stir in you, again, a passion for prayer. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to stir that in you. Your privilege is that you can pray at any occasion directly to God through Jesus. We come to pray prayers to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're a praying church. We've had a week of prayer this week. Tonight we have a prayer meeting. Why not come along? Why not join us as we pray into all God's calling us to as a church at this time? Great to pray for one another as needs come about. Great to pray for those who are sick how encouraging it's been to see miracles. I think of Andy Kitto and as a church, how we prayed for him over recent months. I saw him this week, couldn't believe it. The astonishing recovery he's made. 
God loves to hear your prayers. He loves to hear a praying church. A good church, a healthy church, is a church that prays. A healthy disciple of Jesus is a disciple that prays. So let me stir you. Pray, 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 pray. And as you pray, you'll see it. prayers answered. You'll see breakthrough. And actually, even more than that, you'll find yourself drawn closer to your Father. What a treat that is. So they were devoted. They loved. They loved the apostles' teaching. They loved one another. They loved breaking bread. And they loved to pray. That's how discipleship happened in the context of the church. That's how this community learned. This is what a good church looks like. It's the kind of church I believe we are and we are aspiring to increasingly be. We're not the finished article. No church is. We're on this journey, but we do it together and we help one another along. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this description of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Thank you that in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were a people who loved teaching of the Bible because they loved you. They loved one another. They just were so generous to one another and sharing all that they had. They loved to break bread and remember the victory of the cross and they loved to pray. I pray, Lord, for us as a church as we seek to be disciples who follow Jesus. Help us to learn together. Help us to learn from house to house and yes in the bigger gatherings when they can happen lord we we know you're going to do so much more in and through us we thank you we don't do this only in our strength our discipleship is empowered by the holy spirit yes we're called to work hard but it's empowered work spirit empowered work and as we do these things we know we'll become ever more like you lord jesus and we long for that in our lives help us I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.